I spent a lot of time this week trying to figure out exactly how to do this class. We are beginning what in the, one of the commentaries uh, I read is the big title over the top of it is the Disintegration of Judah. We just finished the complete uh, destruction of the northern kingdom when Assyria came and captured them. We finished that last week. And now we're starting on through, through the remainder of 2 Kings, starting in chapter 18, this disintegration of Judah. Now it doesn't start out badly. It starts out very well, actually, because we are going to get into the reign of Hezekiah. And the reason I had such trouble with this, trying to figure this out, is that 2 Kings has a little bit to say about Hezekiah. But 2 Chronicles has a lot to say about it at the beginning. And then what happens, 2 Chronicles has a very small portion and 2 Kings has a very big portion on Hezekiah and Assyria and that whole thing. And that's also very large in the book of Isaiah. So I'm trying to make this make a lot of sense to you. So this week... I plan on doing the beginning of Hezekiah. We're going to start in 2 Kings, and then we're going to jump into uh, 2 Chronicles. And next week, we're going to get out of 2 Chronicles, go back to 2 Kings, and probably spend time between a combination of 2 Kings and Isaiah 37 or 36 and 37. Hopefully it all kind of makes sense. But... It's, um, there's some very interesting and good things we can learn from this. So we're going to begin in 2 Kings 18. Now I, I passed out some notes for you. Because a lot of this is more historical, there's, there, you know, the notes are just the big sections that we're going to go through and there's not a lot of detail in it. But with the northern kingdom gone due, with, due to the assimilation by Assyria, the kingdom of Judah, or the southern kingdom, is going to last for another 135 years until the Babylonian captivity begins. And then that will last 70 years, and then they'll go back and uh, get back into the land and those types of things. And you would think that due to its size and strength that Assyria would have been easily been able to, accomplish, uh, to destroy Judah. Because Judah was small. There was two tribes. Judah and Benjamin. But at the same, at the same time we have to remember it is God who determines the fate of nations. It's not their strength. Assyria and Babylon or any other nation, and that includes today, that's bent on the demise of Israel has no power in their own mind to thwart the plan of God. And 2 Kings 18 tells us what is happening in Judah that was made up of these two tribes. So let's look at the first six verses of 2 Kings 18 says, in the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, 
Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. Here's the key verse. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke pieces of the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called the Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but he kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. This is quite a change. This is quite a statement of Hezekiah. Now we're going to find out as we get to the end of Hezekiah's life, he did what was right in the sight of God, but he did two things that were pretty pretty poor as well. And uh, it, it ended up um, costing Israel or Judah. But for the most part, extremely complimentary here. Now the first thing to note is the stark difference between the king of Israel and in verse 3, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And it continues, verse 5, 6, he trusted in the Lord. There was none like him. And as we noted in our review of 2 Kings 17, the kings of Israel, the, southern, or the northern kingdom, were noted as serving God at the same time they were serving false gods. They were trying to play both sides. And we talked about that last week. They were not solely devoted to God. And we discussed last week, and I thought about this a lot all week, on how this attempt to play all sides is still alive everywhere we look. And basically, it's out there. In Christian circles, in pagan circles, in cultic circles, it's everywhere. Or as Vodi Bakum would say, Everywhere, which is everywhere. Another thing to note is that Hezekiah had a much different approach to his worship and following God's commands than his father did, Ahaz. We can summarize Ahaz in 2 Kings 16. It says, Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father had done, but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering. Now that would have been Ahaz's brother, or half-brother, depending on who his mother was. So that was his father. And we were sitting here, and this was not the case of Ahaz. After we are told that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, verse 4 tells us a little bit about what that was. He removed the things that promoted false worship. 
He removed the high places. He broke the pillars. He cut down the Asherah pole. And he destroyed the bronze serpent that Moses has ma had made. Now the story of that bronze serpent is found in Numbers chapter 21. And we read this, starting in verse 4. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea, and all to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. Like that happened a lot in the, in the wilderness. And the people spake against God and against Moses, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food or water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. Now, I don't know how many it was, but it was a lot. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. Now this is also talked about in John chapter 3 as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness even so that whole thing this, that's this serpent. So Moses made a broadened serpent and set it on a pole and if a serpent bit anyone he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So they had kept this bronze serpent but what were they doing with it? They were worshipping it. Why do we place value? And this is us too, not just them. And mystical value at that on religious artifacts or religious locations. You know, think about it. If we knew for sure which cup Jesus and the disciples drank during the Last Supper. Remember Raiders of the Lost Ark or one of those at the, one of those that had the cup. I don't know which one it was. That wasn't that one. It was a different one. But it's the same series. Or if we had the actual cross where Jesus was crucified. If we had, and we knew it, was, knew it was the actual cross. Not all the fakey stuff we have today. Or we knew for sure the actual tomb where Jesus was buried and rose. Or any other such artifact like that. I think we'd be better off destroying it. Just like they did here. Because there would be throngs who would place worship on those things. And if we think, and, and well, first of all, that would be idolatry and an offense to God. And just, just look at the hullabaloo around the Shroud of Turin. Right? And that, that can't even be verified, validated. It's a burial cloth. Who said it was Jesus? Well, somebody did because it looked like Jesus. How do you know that? You know, it was only on him for two days, three days. How about the person who sees Jesus in a tortilla? All I got to do is go out and Google it. Oh, yeah. There for a while, people were selling those things on eBay for tons of money. Um, it can get crazy. And those things aren't anywhere close to the original. But here, the children of Israel had the original serpent. And sure, they were doing what we would do today, worshiping it. 
If the original Ark of the Covenant was ever found, how many would pray to it and worship it? Mm -hmm. A ton. Yeah. That being said, Hezekiah showed great insight and great um, a great decision in destroying the bronze serpent. Oh, look up what it would be worth for antiquity. No, because people will worship it. We are that kind of that's who we are. That's how we live. That's one reason building the, the golden calves that uh, Jeroboam did and, and uh, Aaron did was just an offense to God. Don't do those things. Spurgeon commented on the destruction of the serpent. He said this, Although it was an interesting memorial, I like how he said that, Although it was an interesting memorial, it must be utterly destroyed because it presented a temptation to idolatry. Now, this is a little speculative, but one thing that may have been a large factor in Hezekiah Knowing what the Lord required and destroying the high places and destroying the bronze serpent was that there was a guy around, because someone asked me this question earlier, there was a guy around that had an influence on him named Isaiah. Isaiah was an active prophet at that time. And Isaiah was active during his reign. And I got to believe that Isaiah and other prophets like him had a huge impact on Hezekiah. Another thing to remember about Isaiah, he was a prophet of God during the reigns of the kings of Judah. Azariah, Jotham, Ahaz, which is Hezekiah's father, Hezekiah, and Manasseh. <coughs> and the records of Ahaz and Manasseh show that these two did not do what was right in the sight of God and tradition states that Manasseh cut, a, uh, cut uh, in half Isaiah with a wooden saw. We don't know if it's true or not but Manasseh was an evil guy. Uh, but Isaiah probably it makes sense, speculative but probably had quite an influence on Hezekiah and we will see that Hezekiah did go to Isaiah later on for counsel. So going on in 1 Kings 18, Hezekiah's treatment of Assyria. It says, And the Lord was with him, verse 7, wherever he went, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria. This is the largest nation in the world up to that time with the biggest army that was extremely cruel and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory, territory and from watchtower to fortified city. Now from verse 1 of first King, or 2 Kings 18, we see that Hezekiah must have known what was happening in the northern kingdom. They were being sieged by Assyria and they were going to be destroyed and taken away. Because Three years into Hezekiah's reign, Assyria began its three-year siege of Samaria. Another thing to note is when you try to reconcile all these dates that are in there, 
it gets a little tricky, and it's possible that Hezekiah could have been a co-regent with his father. We don't know that. But if anybody gets all wigged out about, oh, these dates don't try quite line up, there were co-regencies and those types of things. But Hezekiah was committed to the Lord, and the Lord was with him. And what may appear like a simple statement, like he rebelled against the king of Assyria, it's really pretty significant. Remember, Judah was, or, yeah, Israel, uh, Judah was, a, was a small, little, insignificant country, really, and Assyria was the strongest military power in the world and ruled the largest empire in the world up to that time in history. But the opening verse, uh, the opening of verse 7 is significant. The Lord was with him wherever he went out. Now, why was the Lord with him? Because, verse 3, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and he removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze servant that Moses has made, Verse 5, he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. Now here's where we're going to take a little detour um, in, in, in the text to see a little bit about what Hezekiah did that showed that, the Lord, that, that he was following the Lord. And this is where we go to 2 Chronicles chapter 29. 2 Chronicles 29 gives us a lot more detail than 2 Kings. And we're going to try to cover this pretty quickly because there's a lot here. The first thing that we see that Hezekiah did is that he cleansed the temple. This is in verses 2 to 19. And we won't read all of them, but pick out a few verses starting in verse 3. In the first year of his reign, this is Second Chronicles 29. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, so he started right away, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Well, they needed repair. He brought in the priests and the Levites and assembled them in the square on the east and said to them, Hear me, Levites, now consecrate yourselves and consecrate the house of the Lord the God of your fathers and carry out the filth from the holy place. For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done what was evil in the sight of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord and turned their backs. They also shut the doors of the vestibule and put out the lamps and have not burnt incense or offering or burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore, the wrath of God came on Judah and Jerusalem, and he has made them an object of horror, of astonishment, and hissing, as you see with your own eyes. Verse 10, Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, in order that his fierce anger may turn away from us. So the first thing he did is cleansed the temple. They and before they cleansed the temple, they consecrated themselves. They went in, they made themselves consecrated to the Lord before they went in and cleansed the house of the Lord. 
And if you look at that, all of those verses, it took them 16 days to clean out the crud in there. That's a lot. And I don't know how many were involved, but that's just not one guy going through it. That was a whole bunch of people going in there and cleaning the temple. This shows the depth of to which the people had turned away from the worship of the Lord in the care of the temple. The temple was in deplorable state. Verse 6 says, Our fathers have been unfaithful and have done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They have forsaken him. And then it says, They have turned their backs. I could not read that section without thinking of the churches in America and Europe specifically who have done are continuing to do the same they're turning their backs on God we could name denomination after denomination we could name church after church who have totally abandoned the truth the gospel and the Bible and replaced it with platitudes or entertainment a social justice or a gathering group a places whose calling cards, one church here in town, their calling card is to experience the abundant life. You know, it's estimated that there are just there are just under four hundred thousand church congregations in the United States. Four hundred thousand churches. Sadly, few few have been faithful to the teachings of Scripture, and many of them are like what happened in Israel. They have turned their backs on God. We need to make sure we don't do that. And then after cleansing the temple, what did he do? In Second Chronicles 29, starting in verse 20, Hezekiah restored the temple worship. Verse 20. We're going to read a few of these verses. Then Hezekiah the king rose early and gathered the officials of the city and went up to the house of the Lord. And he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals and harps and lyres, according to the commandment of David and the king and of Gad, the king's seer, and of Nathan the prophet. For the commandment was from the Lord through his prophets. Verse 27. Then Hezekiah commanded that the burnt offerings be offered on the altar. Verse 28, the whole assembly worshipped. Verse 30, and Hezekiah the king and the officials commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. And they sang praises with gladness, and they bowed down and worshipped. Thus the service of the house of the Lord was restored. Verse 36, and Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced because God had provided for the people for the thing came about suddenly. So yeah, this happened pretty quickly. I mean, it was the first year of his reign, cleaned the temple, and then after that was done, he instituted temple worship. A couple things to notice about this restoration of worship. The Hebrew phrase that lies behind singing to the Lord is literally the song of the Lord, which suggests a specific writing. Um, perhaps it was one of the psalms that they had. 
that were available for use in worship. We don't know. But it was a specific thing. The other thing is Hezekiah was establishing worship as a priority. We should do so as well. Establish worship as a priority. It's easy to put this aside in our life as if it's not a priority or if it's, eh, it's in there, but other things get in the way. What was the main issue with both Israel and Judah? The worship of God. They tried to do it their own way. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 state this. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. We need to place worship as a priority. And the next thing to see here is when they worshiped God properly as a priority, what was the result? Verse 36, And Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced. (coughs) Before this was done, before they had restored that worship and cleaned up the temple, there was this absence of joy. Now, if you or I, I have to talk to myself here too, come to church and we don't ever rejoice, if you have a hard time rejoicing, could it be that we are not really worshiping God? Worshiping the Lord should bring about rejoicing. And when we read about the throng of worshipers in heaven in Revelation 22, can you just imagine the rejoicing that's going to take place as we sing to God in His presence? I mean, that's going to be something that we, it's going to be way beyond what we can imagine and think. That rejoicing. But worship Proper worship will bring about rejoicing. Rejoicing in God and what he has done. So i got to think about that when I come to church. Am I worshiping God? Am I rejoicing? The next thing we see that Hezekiah did in 2 Chronicles chapter 30 now, we've gone through a whole chapter. Pretty good, huh? Yeah. Is that Passover was celebrated. I found this interesting. That meant the Passover hadn't been celebrated for a while. First 19 verses, and we'll go through some of them. Second Chronicles chapter 30. Hezekiah sent, and other thing to notice here, he sends this message to all Israel, both the southern and the northern kingdoms, or what was left of the northern kingdom. Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover of the Lord, the God of Israel. Verse 6. So couriers went throughout all Israel and Judah with letters from the king. O people of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may turn again to the remnant of you who have escaped from the land 
from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were faithless to the Lord God of their fathers, so that he made them a desolation as you see. Do not now be stiff-necked as your fathers were. I mean, he's calling their fathers what they were, stiff-necked. But yield yourselves to the Lord and come to his sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever, and serve the Lord your God, that his fierce anger may be may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. What's the key of coming back? Turning to God. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. Verse 10. So the couriers went from city to city throughout the country of Ephraim and Manasseh as far as Zebulun. But, every time you have that word in there, you know there's going to be a big change. But they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. However, some of the men of Asher and Manasseh and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. So it appears that the timing of this invitation was after the the defeat of Samaria, but maybe before the people had been all taken away as captives to the you know by by the Assyrians and dispersed around. We don't know for sure, but it appears that by by reading through that. Now you also may remember the reason that Jeroboam, the first king of Israel, began this idolatrous worship in Samaria by building the golden calves and bringing a place for them to worship, was to keep his people in his northern kingdom from doing precisely what was being proposed, which was to go to Jerusalem and worship the Lord. With Samaria either under siege or already captured, there was little concern with regards to the people turning away from the northern kingdom because it didn't exist anymore. But we see the response of most. Laughter, scorn, and mockery. Their people's hearts were far from God and a desire to worship God. And so it is with today. People's hearts are much more drawn to the worship of themselves and what they want. Our natural inclination is not to worship the Lord in the manner that he prescribes. But we need to notice one more truth that Hezekiah pointed out in verse 9. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. You know, many of us here, some, maybe all of us, in one degree or another, can talk about the time that the Lord had compassion because we returned to him and he forgave. Because he is gracious and merciful and will not turn his face if we come to him in repentance. That's a great promise. Jesus pointed this out in John 6, 35 to 37. 
when Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes to me shall shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Bruce? Yes? This wasn't just something Hezekiah was relating to the people. He was practicing it himself. Yes. He was repenting of sins of his father and of the nation. That's a great point. That's a great point. Hezekiah was was living what he was doing. Because he was repenting too. Absolutely. No one will ever be able to say no one will ever be able to say that they wanted to come to Jesus in repentance, but they were not accepted by God. Instead, those who reject God demonstrate the same attitude as those responding to Hezekiah's invitation with laughing, scorn, and mockery. Then we go on, starting in verse 13. And many people came together in Jerusalem. This had to be quite a sight because it hadn't happened in a while. Many people came together in Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the second month, a very great assembly. And the priests and the Levites were ashamed so that they consecrated themselves and brought burnt offerings into the house of the Lord. Verse 16. And they took their accustomed post according to the law of Moses, the man of God. Hezekiah had prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone who sets, who sets his heart to seek God, the Lord, God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary's rule of cleanness. And the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people, and the people of Israel were present, who were present at Jerusalem kept of the feast of unleavened bread seven days with great gladness. There's that rejoicing. There's that gladness again. You know, when we, when we follow the Lord, there is a gladness. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Doesn't mean that, uh, you know, your bank account's going to get good. No, but you're going to be glad. And the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing with all their might to the Lord. I'm not trying to be picky here because I do it at times too sometimes when I sing I don't sing with all my might to the Lord sing with all your might why because it's a privilege and we will be glad to sing and I don't care if you're on tune or not sing with all your might verse 25 the whole assembly of Judah and the priests and the Levites and the whole assembly that came of Israel and the sojourners that came out of the land of Israel and the sojourners who lived in Judah rejoiced. So there was great joy in Jerusalem for since the time of Solomon. Now I've got to remember, Simon Solomon was 220 some years before. Great joy in Jerusalem and they knew that they had this Assyrian thing out there somewhere. The people knew that, but it didn't stop. They're rejoicing. So there was great joy in Jerusalem since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. There had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. 
The, then the priests and the Levites arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came to this holy habitation in heaven. I want to see the YouTube of this deal. That would have been great. What a great scene this must have been. People coming together to worship God properly, in a proper manner, something that had been missing for a long, long time. Over 200 years, great joy in Jerusalem for since the time of Solomon. Now, the big joyous thing in Solomon is when they dedicated the temple the first time. Go back and read that. We covered that, I don't know, a long time ago. What, what a great occasion that was. And this was the next best thing to that. The next thing we see that Hezekiah did is in 2 Chronicles 31. Starting with verse 1. Now after all this was finished, so we had this celebration, we had this worship in the temple. All Israel who were present went out to the cities of Jerusalem and broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the asherim and broke down the high places and the altars throughout all Judah and Benjamin and in Ephraim and Manasseh until they had destroyed just what the ones, what the ones they didn't want. No, until they had destroyed them all. Then all the people of Israel returned to their cities, every man to his own possession. So after the cleansing of the temple... And the Passover celebration and the offering of sacrifices to God. The next thing to do is to cleanse the land by the removal of everything associated with the idol worship that had made its way into the nation. And this is where we get you know the more detail in Second Chronicles than we did in Second Kings, where it says that Hezekiah tore all those things down. That's all we have. Well, this this is kind of the you know how it played out now notice also that this was not done by three people who went throughout the land and destroyed them all this was done by all Israel who were present went out and they participated in this teardown when they had completed the task they went back home so it was a mass of people now as great as this event was and it was great we know from history that it would not have long-lasting effects. Revivals do come, but revivals aren't permanent. Why? Because man's heart is bent against God. It was then, and it remains so today. The next thing we see in Second Chronicles here is Hezekiah organizing the priests starting in verse 2 through verse 21. And some of these verses say this. And Hezekiah appointed the divisions of the priests and of the Levites, division by division, each according to his service. And the priests and the Levites for bird offerings and peace offerings to minister in the gates of the camp of the Lord and to give thanks and praise. Verse 4. And he commanded the people who lived in Jerusalem to give a portion due to the priests and the Levites, that they might give themselves to the law of the Lord. And as soon as the command was spread abroad, 
the people of Israel gave in abundance the first fruits of grain, wine, oil, honey, and all of the produce of the field. And they brought in abundantly tithe of everything. Verse 7. This is interesting. In the third month, they began to pile up the heaps the people were bringing in. And they finished them in the seventh month. When Hezekiah and the princes came and saw the heaps, they blessed the Lord and his people Israel. So that took him from the third month through the seventh month to compile all the stuff that the people brought in. Verse 20. Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. In every work that he undertook in the service of the house of the Lord, in accord, and in accordance with the law and commandments, seeking his God, he did with all his heart. Which gets back to what Scott just said. He was, he was involved in this completely and prospered. That must have been another great sight to see. We see in verse 4 that it was a command to the people, a command to the people, to give a portion to the priests and the Levites. And they responded willingly, quickly, and abundantly. Now, a final note on this passage. Verse 5, the word tithe is used. Now, many people have tried to take the tithe used in the Old Testament at times of Israel and make it applicable to the church beginning in the New Testament. And that continues to today. Uh, not too long ago, I watched some false teacher talk about how we have to bring our tithes and that type of a thing. A couple of notes about tithing. First of all, the New Testament is silent on tithing, but it's not silent about giving. 1 Corinthians 16, 1-4, and, and 2 Corinthians 9, we learn this. Giving should be in relation to how God has prospered you. We also see that each one should give as they have decided in their heart, not due to compulsion, but cheerfully. First Corinthians or Second Corinthians nine, six to thirteen says this. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each man must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things and at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely he has given to the poor, his righteous endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. If anybody comes and says you owe X amount based on your income, that's your tithe, 
they are exceeding what the Bible says. Give cheerfully. And in this church, we're going to have an annual report here. God is supplying our needs. Okay? We're not, we don't have a $400 million in the bank. If we did, we'd have the remodel done. But, um, but just give cheerfully whatever God deals in your heart. So that is real quickly a run through Second Chronicles to give us more detail about what happens with Hezekiah. Now we want to go back to Second Kings 18 for just a second. Second Kings 18 verse 9 to 16. In the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Shalmanzer, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years he took it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Hosea, Samaria was taken. All right? The king of Assyria carried the Israelites away to Assyria and put them in Hala and on the Haber and the river Gozen and the cities of the Medes because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God but transgressed his covenant even all that Moses the servant had commanded. They neither listened or obeyed. That's the historical setting. Now just to tell you the next verse we have in 2 Kings 18 verse 13 because we stopped at verse 12. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah remember he reigned 29 years if I remember right. Sennacherib king of Assyria came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And next week we're going to see what Hezekiah does. But all this stuff that we had talked about had taken place before. And now Hezekiah is confronted with the king of Assyria. And there's some pretty interesting stuff. Let's just say it ends with a whole lot of dead Assyrian soldiers. Okay? Bunches of them. But that gives us the background for Hezekiah. Any questions or comments? Hmm? 